And uh, some of you might know that I recently taught a class on the seven factors of awakening for common ground here in Minneapolis. And uh, of course, we covered tranquility. And as I was uh, teaching that topic, this was maybe a month ago or so, I just recognized like in preparing for the talk and giving the talk, how much I like talking about tranquility. <laughs> and uh, and I was, uh, I was surprised to see in Joseph Goldstein, he has a, a wonderful book on mindfulness out, maybe some of you have seen it, and it's covering the Buddhist teachings on the Satipatthana Sutta, and including the seven factors are toward the end of the book. And in his little section on tranquility, he talks about how, I'll just read it maybe, uh, although the Buddha laid out, <clears throat> excuse me, this progression so clearly, the enlightenment factor of calm is frequently overshadowed by its jazzier neighbors, rapture and concentration. And then he goes on to talk about how in his own practice, you know, we tend to, maybe it's true for all of us, but, you know, we tend to go for um, total and absolute freedom or deep, powerful states of rapture, that kind of more energetic side of practice or profound stillness. But there's something maybe uh, not jazzy, but something so trustworthy about tranquility. And so you might have noticed in the title for tonight's program, just considering tranquility and calm a radical uh, capacity, I guess we could say, that that we have this potentiality. But a lot of us, you know, maybe all of us in different ways, we're really addicted to intensity and drama and exciting things. And there's something, you could say a thread that uh, travels the whole length of this path of awakening that the Buddha points to, the Buddhist teachings point to. And it has this particular flavor of calm and tranquility. Of course, it becomes more refined and it opens up possibilities of the deepening of insight. But the, even the deepening of insight itself has the ongoing reverberation of greater calm in our lives, no matter the conditions. So it isn't just the calm that arises when we bring our attention to our meditation object and put down the grasping toward the other objects in the mind. You know, we're not thinking about the day or worrying about tomorrow. We're just with the body or just with the next in-breath or out-breath or with the loving-kindness phrases or with the walking meditation practice or whatever the particular training that we've taken up for that meditation period. But it also that the tranquility is also the flavor of deeper insight, that calm, no matter the conditions. So I thought I would talk about that and I'll save time for discussion and questions before we end around 8.45. And, um, you know, it's no wonder it doesn't get maybe as much attention as some other aspects of the Buddhist practice, this 
coolness of calm and tranquility. Somewhere in Ajahn Sumedho's uh, chapter, maybe some of you have looked at his small book. This is from long ago when he, he made it, but you can get it online for free distribution. It's called Now is the Knowing. And in that booklet, Ajahn Sumedho has a chapter on Anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing practice. And somewhere in that chapter, he talks about especially this calming part of practice um, of just returning to the breath, returning to the present moment as a kind of earthworm practice, not some glorious practice that someone's going to write an article about, you know, Mark was able to connect with his breath and sustain attention through one inhalation and then continuing through one exhalation and maybe a few more breaths. And then doing that experience, the absence of the mind obsessing about the past, the present or the future. And notice the calm and the peace of that. You know, we don't write articles about that, about that pleasure of simplicity. Or as I mentioned in the guided sit, if you were there, you know, there's a pleasure when our mind is secluded from what it normally does. What does it normally do? It normally worries. It normally plans. It normally compares ourselves to our others and compare, even compare ourselves to who we thought we were in the past or who we want to be in the future. You know, it analyzes itself's problems, speculates worries. So that's what our mind normally does. And so when the mind isn't doing what it normally does, what is that flavor of the heart, the mind, the body? What is the flavor of tranquility? And what are the supporting causes for it? You know, and you might remember for some of you who've read the Satipatthana, one of the more important discourses, the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness. And in that last section where the Buddha is talking about mindfulness of dhammas, he says that we should be aware, like for each of the beautiful factors of awakening, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Those are the seven factors of awakening. So for each one, and and also with the hindrances, those forces that hinder the balance and continuity of present moment awareness, we want to know if each of the wholesome factors or unwholesome factors are present or not present. And when they're present, when tranquility, for example, is present in the mind, how does in paying attention in what way does that quality of tranquility come to its full development? Or if it's not present, paying attention to what supporting causes allows tranquility to start to be present, to be one of those qualities in the mind. And this is often how the Buddha taught about conditionality, cause and effect. And just understanding like what the wholesome qualities we want, if the if that wholesome quality isn't present, we want to 
practice in a way that allows that quality to arise in the mind. If it's already present, we want to practice in a way that brings that wholesome quality to full development. And so that's kind of our homework, like especially in this particular topic of working, being interested in tranquility. Do we know, like as we go through the day and during our formal sitting and walking meditation times, do we know when tranquility is present or not in our minds? I mean, honestly, not all the time, and maybe not even much of the time at all. Are we clearly aware, oh, there's tranquility. It may be somewhat faint, or maybe in another moment it's more strongly developed. But just to be to be kind of as a habit, to be curious about the presence or absence of tranquility. And then of course, in some ways, even more importantly, all through the day. Is there tranquility or is there the opposite, you know, agitation or whatever you sense as the opposite of that calm, cool, serene quality. Pasadi is the Pali word. Sometimes it, it has, um, even though it's, it's a mental quality, the body reflects that. So there's a kind of composure in the body when we have strong tranquility. I'm not sure if any of you have done any of the Thich Nhat Hanh retreats, but a long time ago, a couple of decades ago, I got to go to Plum Village to do a retreat with uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, this wonderful Vietnamese Buddhist monk who died about a year ago, um, well into his 90s. But anyway, they have a nice song that they sing. And I was sort of curious with the lyrics. You might have heard it. Um, I am alive, let me say, I am alive, I am home in the here and in the now. I am alive, I am home in the here and in the now. And then here's a lyric I really thought was interesting. I am solid, I am free, I am solid. I am free, in the ultimate I dwell, in the ultimate I dwell. <clears throat> so the, the point I want to make is that word solid, and I think it relates to the presence of tranquility that's so central to the work or to the practices that we do as students of the Buddhist teachings. There is that sense of solidity stability. And initially we feel it when we touch into some greater tranquility in our sitting practice, for example, there is that visceral sense of the body not wanting to move. But it isn't like a hard or a fixed. It's just, uh, just a, a beautiful sense of not needing to move not needing things to be different than they are. And that's one of the characteristics of, of tranquility is that uh, solidity and stability. Because, you know, one of the more distinctive characteristics of tranquility is that it suppresses desire in the mind. And, you know, as Buddhists, as people who are interested in the Buddhist teachings, we we need to have a nuanced relationship with desire. It's too simplistic 
to reject desire. It's, it's just uh, not going to work because desire is sort of synonymous with being alive. So you can't just reject desire. But on the other hand, we can't just be a victim or you know, pushed around by desire and taking whatever desire has gotten triggered or showing up in our experiences. Well, that's my desire. And we get identified with it and then we act it out. But when we choose, like we did in the guided meditation, for some of you who were here for that, you know, we were just following the breathing in and the breathing out, that ordinary rhythm, physicality of breathing in and breathing out. And thereby, you know, because we chose to be interested in something neutral, something ordinary, just that physical process of breathing in and out. Well, and, and to whatever degree we brought a full attention, attentiveness to that process of breathing in and out, well, then naturally the mind couldn't attend to its worries, its hopes, its fears, its comparing, its problem solving, its all the other things that the mind normally does. It just, it had another thing that it was full of, right? It was that full presence with the natural process of bringing breathing in and out. And so we experience that simplicity. The mind, when we get a little momentum, that begins to feel okay, and even then content, and then happy and joyful. Just not that the breath is somehow special, but it's the absence. It's more about what's not there. The mind isn't being pushed around. Like when I'm doing my problem solving or worrying or thinking about what I fear or thinking about what I hope for, all of that stuff is triggering, you know, all of those conditioned habits to be excited, to be afraid, to react in this way and that way, to become tight in body and mind in different ways. So this is why I think Ajahn Sumedho uses that provocative term, you know, that this is an earthworm practice. Because we use things like walking back and forth. I got, I've been able to practice in Asia a few times. And you see this even at IMS, uh, a little bit west of you. Some of you maybe have been at the, to Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. But even there, you know, you'll notice, especially during the longer retreats, that places on the lawn, the grass gets completely worn down because people just walk back and forth, back and forth. It's like earthworm practice, you know, like following the breath in and out or repeating loving kindness phrases and repeating them again and bringing it to mind again. And any number of other practices that we do where we're training the mind, we're not following the mind's habit to want to think about this and then to want to plan that and then to want to worry, speculate about the past, speculate about the future, compare myself to this or that. But we train our mind to attend, to be authentically interested in something relatively ordinary, like breathing in and out or walking back and forth or just being present with the body. Some people use the experience of hearing. And in a meditation hall or 
or homes, it might be just the sound of the blower. I mean, there may not be that many distinct, specific sounds that we're hearing if we're in a quiet room, but just sort of the background hum, minor sounds coming and going, just the like, uh, and it's not like we're trying to attend to particular sounds, but being all inclusive, something ordinary. And often for tranquility practice, it's that intimacy and continuity with what's ordinary that we really come to that breakthrough where wisdom in the mind becomes clearly aware, oh my goodness, there really is an actual accessible pleasure in this simplicity of the mind, in a mind that's with something ordinary and being so fully there with whatever the ordinary meditation object might be, it's completely not doing all those other things. So the pleasure isn't about being attentive to the walking. You know, I was going to mention in Asia, you know, they actually, the, they have these smooth earthen paths and you just get a sense when you see them how many times people have walked back, back and forth on those paths. And they're kind of a little high so that during the rainy season, the water is shed off into the forest. Um, and they usually have really thick uh, bamboo on both sides to hold the soil there, but really smooth, um, flat path back and forth. It's the most ordinary thing in the world, you know, to walk from point A to point B, and then to turn around and to walk from point B to point A, and then to turn around and and you do that, you know, maybe for an hour, and then you go sit as long as you're comfortable sitting, and then you walk as long as you're comfortable walking, and then you sit. And it can sound like to somebody not attuned, like that sounds like torture, because it, to our ordinary mind, it just seems so boring. And that really shows us how dependent our mind, our conditioned mind, our habit-bound mind is to what's juicy, what's agitating, what's all about the push and pulls of our likes and dislikes. That's the world we're used to and, and we're familiar with. And it's kind of, there can be some withdrawal symptoms. And the key is to persist enough until we begin to sense the pleasure of that simplicity. Because it's the sensing of that pleasure of simplicity, the pleasure of seclusion, the pleasure of being present, the pleasure of that fullness of attention that then draws the mind inward towards greater tranquility and then insight that follows. Otherwise, it's just <clears throat> painful work, you know, because we're just always being challenged by our habits to want to worry, to want to plan, to want to think, to want to analyze. So it's really important that when you take up, you sit down and do your formal sitting practice, and it has somewhat of a tranquility orientation, or you're doing your walking practice, and you want to settle the mind, calm the mind, that you're interested, even if you don't know it in your bones yet, even if you don't know it in your own experience, then you have to borrow some confidence from the Buddha and from your teachers 
maybe there's some real pleasure if I just persist, not get tight, not try too hard, but not be negligent. So that balanced way and persist and just be bringing this full attention to the present moment, to something usually ordinary, like the breath, like whole body awareness, like awareness of hearing, like awareness of walking or standing, lying down, right? We can use any of the postures. But it, what's really important is that full interested presence, that undivided, unwavering presence. Because it's that fullness that will prevent the mind from doing what it's usually doing, the worrying, the planning, the judging. the, And that's the cause for recognizing the pleasure is the absence of what the mind normally does, right? And once we're aware of the pleasure, and the this is sort of what happens in that fourth step. I don't know if people sensed it in your own practice tonight, but just going back to the four, the first four instructions that the Buddha gives in the uh, mindfulness of breathing instructions. You know, first he's just asking us to remember this capacity to be aware. I think the phrase that gets translated is establish mindfulness to the four. Oh yeah, this moment is being known. And then using that capacity to recognize the present moment, we combine it with this um, anchor, this meditation object, which is recognize the breathing in, recognize the experience of breathing out, so use that ordinary rhythm of breathing in and breathing out and just track that experience. And, and track it with enough interest, enough attentiveness that you can discern when a breath is longer or rougher and when a breath is shorter and more refined. Because that will just give you a sense of whether the mind is still stirred up or whether the mind and body is beginning to settle. And it's this is one of the reasons that the breath is a nice training anchor, both for tranquility and insight, because its nature, it isn't constant. It reflects the mind. So when the mind becomes more settled, the breathing process becomes more subtle. So you see, it, it requires a greater... Uh, interest and attentiveness as it becomes more, as the breath becomes more subtle. And eventually the breath can become very subtle. So the quality of listening becomes even equally refined and attentive. Oops, my kitty cat is looking for some attention. Excuse me. And, and there's a, there's really a sense of coolness, you know, in leaving behind what the mind would normally think about, worry about, plan about, right? It's, I mean, not to be too provocative, but it's, it is a kind of dying. We're, for the period of the training that we're undertaking, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, we're that normal activity, the mind that does the comparing and the planning and the 
problem solving and the worrying, that's really not being given much juice. The Buddha has a beautiful simile about this, you know, in terms of all of these agitating habits of mind to worry, let's say. He says it's like a bonfire. And he says, imagine a bonfire in which a person periodically dumps 40 cartloads of branches and dried dung and other flammable material. And then he asks his students, so what, do you, what would happen? And they go, well, that bonfire is really going to, you know, it's going to really burn. It's going to keep burning intensely. And then he, a little later in the discourse, the Buddha asks, and how about if there's a big bonfire and, and people periodically don't put any fuel into that fire? And they say, the, the, the students say, well, that fire is going to go out. And that's really what we're doing. You know, in keeping the attention, the presence on what is neutral and ordinary, not dramatic, not triggering greed, hatred, and delusion, not triggering mental proliferation, then like a snow globe, the mind and all the activity of the mind, it naturally begins to settle down. And we, over time, especially, we acquire a taste for calm. For tranquility. And that, I think, as I mentioned in the title, that is a radical transformation. The more we start living our life and doing our meditation practice, but the heart has cultivated a real taste and a real valuing of tranquility. Whether we know it or not, most of us have an attachment to and a dependence on excitement and intensity and drama. I mean, think about the kind of food we like to eat. We like a lot of diversity and interesting flavors and interesting textures. Yeah, think about the entertainments we gravitate towards. You know, it's not that we want to see dance. We want to see people who are amazing dancers, right? We're not content with just six-year-olds who've had two months of training dancing. I mean, we do, we care if we love them, if they're our grandchild or our, you know, son or daughter or whatever, but we want amazing stuff, you know? We go skiing in New England and then we think, oh, I got to go skiing out west or, you know, I've got to go to the Alps or or I like this kind of music, but I want to hear it live, or I want to hear it with this amazing, clear speaker that just makes the music pop in a way. So we have this very strong conditioning that when we have something we like, we want a little bit more of it, more intense, more clear, more deep, right? And we're endlessly in pursuit of this uh, intensity and this drama. And it's like kind of what we live for. I catch my mind, even though I've been sincerely practicing for four, 40 years, you know, I still catch my mind, like, you know, even in the middle of a talk sometimes or sitting with people. And then it's almost like, uh, like the animal that I am is saying, what kind of reward am I going to get? I'm being good now, 
So you should be dangling some reward, like when this is all over, then you get to do this, you get to have that, right? And it's just part of that as opposed to sensing the contentedness that comes with everything being settled and being cool and being content with what is, as opposed to discontent with what is and uh, interested and attached with what I imagine might be out there. And it's like, well, it, it works both ways. It's like, I'm a little too cold now. So I imagine like when this is done, I'll go turn the heat up and then I'll feel better, right? So it can be getting away from something that's an irritant or going towards something that we want. And it's never ending. That's the thing about these cycles. So one of the reasons why tranquility, and the Buddha says this, that tranquility is onward leading. The Buddha says this, he says that tranquility when tranquility is well-developed, desire ceases, right? Temporarily, desire is suppressed because that feeling, like I was saying earlier, you know, that feeling of being stable and solid and not wanting to move, not needing things to be different. That's the kind of emotional flavor of tranquility, of contentedness. And because it is a good feeling, it's the good feeling that arises when I don't need anything to be different. So you see how that's a suppression of what is normally animating my life, which is desiring this and desiring that, desiring to get rid of that and desiring to get that and, and all that stuff, our likes and dislikes. That's what normally animates us. And that's why in Buddhist sense, we describe an ordinary mind as one that's agitated and restless. And then in our pursuits of our likes and dislikes, getting rid of what we don't like and getting what we do like, we start acting in ways that, um, yeah, that sort of breaks um, our moral integrity. You know, we cheat a little, we take advantage, we manipulate. I mean, we even do this with our spouses where we're subtly manipulating them. I caught myself, I've caught myself a number of times where my partner and I are having dessert, you know, and it, it's like, I, I see, you know, I, I want the bigger piece, but I don't want to be the person who wants the bigger piece. You know, just the subtle manipulation of like, well, if I do it this way, then she'll give me the bigger piece, you know, and I'll, I'll be generous having given it to her, but she'll give it back. You know, it's like all that sort of subtle manipulation and it is agitating. Being the one who is dependent on my desires to get and my desires to get rid of, that is an agitated state of being. Being the one, even if I don't have perfect, you know, I don't have, my belly isn't full in the way I want it to be full or my body isn't warm or cool in the way I want it to be warm or cool or my life situation isn't the way I want it. But being content with 
right now it is this way and my heart has been trained to appreciate the feeling the flavor of contentedness and tranquility and it's the same with the breath like if you're using the breath as your anchor and you notice that the breath is kind of a little wild and erratic and deeper and longer you know not settled not refined wanting the breath to be refined is not the way to have that kind of more refined peaceful breathing being okay with your rougher grosser breath being really okay with it and letting the body breathe the way it wants to breathe that is what allows the breathing to settle down it's the same with thinking isn't it you know hating the fact that we're thinking that we're mental proliferation is on steroids and we're worrying about this and planning that like we do sometimes when we have too much caffeine or too much stimulation in our previous hours you know and then we sit down and notice the mind racing and it's like trying to cage a wild mind just makes it wilder giving that mind a lot of love and as i don't know if you remember one of the first buddhist books i read when i first started in the early 80s was zen mind beginner's mind i'm sure a lot of you've read that book and you might remember there's that chapter this is a pretty rough paraphrase but where suzuki roshi talks about cows you know how do you keep cows from breaking the fence is you give them a really 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 big field you know and they're just less likely you know to break the fence or try to get out of the fence because they have what they want they have this huge expanse so this is a thing about tranquility we have to create the conditions that allows the mind to settle the mind and the body to settle on its own as a natural process being parental and trying to settle things down <clears throat> most often is agitating but generally we learn all of us we learn this the hard way <laughs> especially those of us who are more type a you know controlling types we tend to bring those habits personality habits to how we practice meditation you know and and we want to you make the mind the way we want it to be and then the mind rebels like a teenager rebels but giving up and just letting the mind do what it wants that doesn't work either does it you know and and we and we tend this is the great tragedy even those of us who've been practicing for many years we tend to fall into this habit of trying really hard and then eventually realizing how oh, that's not going to work and then completely giving up i mean we're still there but we're not really using skillful intention that supports the settling of the mind and the deepening of insight and tranquility and insight are really meant to work together in this way insight or wisdom helps us understand the lawful causal nature of tranquility it just doesn't happen randomly there are supporting causes for tranquility and it's the wisdom that understands what helps the mind settle down 
Buddha says this specifically, you know, you have to pay attention to whatever it is that when you pay attention to it, the mind settles. So we probably have a pretty good guess of when I bring what to mind, will my mind become agitated? You know, if I bring to mind the situation where a person betrayed me, I'm probably going to agitate my mind. But if I bring to mind my attention to the wholesomeness of sitting with other people who are interested in tranquility and insight, and I remember like, you know, we sit down, especially in the first few minutes, we remember, oh, there's 30 or 40 people with me. How nice is that? And there are these great teachings from the Buddha on down, and I've got this relatively healthy body and this wholesome intention, right? We bring to mind things that are, in a way, they're soothing and stabilizing for the body and mind. And we need to find directly in our own experience what is soothing and stabilizing and settling so we can bring them to mind strategically. Like when we notice that we've been distracted, being forgiving, being curious, seeing how awareness comes back on its own, the recollectedness, oh, it's like this now. And being grateful for that. Because as soon as we know we've been distracted, of course, we're not distracted in that moment. So it doesn't really make sense to be frustrated then because awareness is aware that we've been distracted. It's much more appropriate to be grateful. Like I'm so glad to notice now that I have been in the past distracted and that it feels like this. Yeah, and just to remember that capacity we have to not add more fuel and to, like I mentioned earlier in the talk, like to really get a sense, well, is there that flavor, that pleasure of contentment here and now? I love how Sharon Salzberg talks about this. She uses that word fullness. And I think that's a useful word in getting to know the pleasure of presence, of mindful awareness. There's that sense of fullness. And you noticed in the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness of breathing, he's having us track the in and out breath in a pretty exclusive way initially. But it's really only for the first two of 16 instructions. Because after, with the third instruction, the Buddha is inviting us to have a more inclusive awareness, starting with uh, this uh, awareness of the whole body, the totality of embodiment. So we're not just with the exclusiveness, like the touching at the nostrils or the rising and falling of the abdomen. And this is to help us sense that quality of wisdom and awareness that has that full, inclusive, it's a kind of fearlessness in the awareness, like almost like we belong in the present moment, the heart, the mind, awareness. It really belongs in this place of being exposed, just to be provocative a little bit, I'll use that word exposed or vulnerable, to what? To the way it is. 
of feeling the whole body. And that, that willingness to be fully here, inclusive, really the confidence comes because the heart, the mind is sensing, or we could say wisdom is sensing the wholesome pleasure of presence, of that stability of present moment awareness, that wisdom awareness. It's really beginning to taste it, feel it as a kind of trustworthy refuge, so much so that I'm willing to let go of a lot of my impulse to do stuff, to worry, to plan, to compare, to analyze, to problem solve, and instead more and more willing just to be present, inclusive, exposed, just allowing things to be, right? And so that third instruction is, you know, breathing in, experiencing the whole body, breathing out, experiencing, allowing the whole body to be. And then the fourth instruction really um, emphasizes the healing of that mind-body relationship. And it's expressed as a kind of pervading calm or sense of embodied well-being that will spread. And it's not that our injuries, our bodily injuries disappear all of a sudden. The body is still the body. But the mind that is knowing the body is with the body in a very full, generous, non-controlling way. And that is experienced as that embodied well-being, that embodied calm. And it's really important to let that embodied well-being, that embodied calm, have its effect. Um, some of you know um, Tanisro Bhikkhu. Um, he's a Western monk and abbot of a monastery outside of San Diego and a wonderful uh, teacher and Buddhist scholar. And he has a wonderful chapter you can find online if you want. It's called excuse me, bathed in the breath, bathed in the breath. And it's this, uh, that title is really an invitation, like he's really talking about being bathing to, to really allow the good feeling to suffuse through the whole body-mind. So every part of the body-mind is touched by that quality. And so in the 16 steps of Anapanasati, there's that embodied calm, there's joy, there's sukha or ease, and then there's the quieting, just allowing the thinking mind, the mental activity to be what it is, a lot of dispassion, and that quiets the mind down. And that's really the development of mental tranquility, starting with the body, feeling the lightness that comes, that more rapture end of our experience, and then that ease of contentment that allows us to relate to any remaining mental activity with a lot more dispassion, which just allows the mind to settle and become more quiet. It doesn't need to be perfectly quiet because whatever mental activity remains, 
wisdom has a kind of spacious relationship, a tranquil relationship with, oh yeah, thinking mind. That's what the mind does. It thinks sometimes. I don't need to be for or against that mental activity because it's just that. It's just mental activity being known. And the mind isn't so, when a tranquil mind isn't confused by bodily or mental activity. And that's that sense of stability, that sense of um, groundedness. And even though it's sort of provocative, that word that Thich Nhat Hanh uses, solidity, you know, but the, it's, it's nice to be provocative sometimes to really get a sense. Because when you first uh, experience a deeper state of tranquility, you'll see there's, there's just something, even though the body, has, the body and mind feels very light and pliable and malleable and you know, all these kind of, you know, the mind's willing to do anything. It's just in this really nimble place. But there's just something energetic about like, don't need, I don't need to do anything physically or mentally. I'm, I can, you know, the, the mind is in a very competent way when there's tranquility. So it has a capacity to problem solve and to analyze because it's so bright. Tranquility isn't a dull state. That's not the tranquility the Buddha is talking about. There's a lot of energy in tranquility. It's just settled. And there's a really fun story. I, I think I heard this originally from a, a Zen teacher long ago, and this is sort of my version of it. But uh, it's about a wish-fulfilling tree, and the idea is somebody's walking along on a really hot day, sun bearing down on them, and they have this appropriate wish. God, it'd be nice to find a big shade tree to hang out under until the sun goes down a little bit more because it's hot. And sure enough, as he rounds a bend, he sees a beautiful shade tree, and there's a nice little grassy area underneath. So he sits down, and he feels so much cooler. He's very appreciative. But after a few minute, minutes, he has another wish, right? He goes, boy, it's really nice here, but be nice to have some food and drink under this beautiful shade tree. And sure enough, he starts to notice up in the tree really juicy fruits, that he starts to eat and just quench and there's a little babbling brook and he has some water and he's enjoying it and he thinks and wishes, boy, it'd be nice to for someone else to show up to share this nice space with and have a friendly conversation. And sure enough, somebody else shows up, a friendly person, and they hit it off and there's fruit and there's water and there's a nice conversation under the shade of the tree and and then the guy's getting a little suspicious, you know, this is a little weird that all this good stuff is happening. I wonder if there's a demon in this tree. And he looks up and sure enough, he sees the demon in the tree. And then he wonders again, boy, I wonder if that demon's going to eat me up. And sure enough, the demon eats him up. And so the, the purpose of this story isn't that there are demons in wish-fulfilling trees. But our thinking mind is a bit like this. Our imagination is problematic, right? It's like, it starts sort of innocent. You know, we're sitting, we get a little tranquility, a little settledness, and a very innocent thought arises like, you know, what would be a really innocent thought when we're sitting? It could be something like, 
meditation is a good thing, you know. But that can lead to the next kind of wish, wishful thought. I should do more meditation. And then we imagine ourselves sitting more. We're no longer in our sit in the present moment. We're imagining ourselves being a little bit more regular in our sitting practice. However, we do that, you know. And then we might imagine ourselves going on a retreat, imagine ourselves having a peaceful sit on a retreat, imagine ourselves being acknowledged by the teacher, you know. And then eventually, after about three minutes, we're imagining ourselves being the next Buddha <laughs> or whatever it might be, you know, going to Asia or, or whatever it might be. But this is the point, you know, that mind, the mental proliferation, it's the Pali word is papancha. It has that seductive onwardness to it. And so even though the initial thought might be pretty innocent, if it goes unrecognized, oh, we're off to the races. But that's going to happen. But we can just begin again. And the key is like when we're, we feel like we're a hundred miles away from tranquility because all of a sudden, you know, we're the Buddha of the next age and we've got thousands of students and a thousand headaches because we have a thousand students and having to deal with all the monasteries or all the retreat centers we have to run and, you know, whatever that we imagine having to write, you know, great Buddhist books to sell and... <laughs> We might think that tranquility is a million miles away, but it's really not. And that's not a helpful idea to think when my mind is agitated that tranquility is far away. A better idea is that, like the image the Buddha uses um, in one of the suttas is like a, a room where all the windows and doors have been closed off for centuries. So it's been completely dark in that room for a long, long time. But how long does it take for that room to become illuminated? It doesn't take long. It doesn't matter that it's been dark for 500 years. As soon as somebody opens a window, everything gets illuminated. So it's the same thing. We might be all tied up into knots, agitated, but there's a way to begin that settling process. And the more confidence we have in our own, my, our heart's own experience of tranquility, the quicker the mind can settle. And it, one of the things we learn over the years of practice is it really matters what we pay attention to. And if we pay attention to what is conducive of tranquility, like for example, the space of the present moment, now, this is a relatively subtle object, but for some of you who've been practicing for a while, this is probably available. Just that sense of the space of the present moment. Now, what's happening in the space of the present moment, like some bodily experience, something I'm hearing or something I'm feeling, a sensation or some mental activity, but the space in which that activity is moving. Right? Do, you, do you sense the peacefulness, the profound simplicity of the space of the present moment? It's not necessarily 
easy to keep in mind, but the mind can be trained. And it isn't about forcing the mind to keep the space of the present moment in mind. It's about getting training the mind to be interested. And what helps that training is to sense the refined pleasure of being present and the refined pleasure of a refined mind. The space of the present moment, attending to the space of the present moment, is a refined aspect of the present moment to keep in mind. It's conducive of peace and tranquility. It's just a further step than coming back to something neutral, like coming back to the breath, coming back to the sensations of the body, coming back to hearing, right? We can come back to peace itself, to tranquility itself, to that confidence that this heart has the capacity to be settled. But what builds that confidence is noticing any moment where the mind, the heart, body is settled. We have to value it so we notice it. And the more we notice it, the more we value it. And the more we're valuing it and noticing it, the more that we realize it's never far away. That that potential of calmness, just like the potential to be agitated and disturbed, that potential is always there, you know? And we could probably think of ways to agitate our minds, you know, if we had a race and see who could do it first. A lot of us, you know, it would be a matter of one or two seconds by bringing certain memories to mind or whatever we would do, looking at our body in a mirror or, you know, we would find one way or another to agitate our mind, you know, and it wouldn't take us long. Now the question, can we be just as good at paying attention in ways that evokes the experience of tranquility and subtleness and contentment. That would be interested, I interesting for us to see. Sometimes I think it's helpful just to, you know, just to call upon it, like with, you can even do this with the breath, but just, you know, for example, with each exhalation, you're just tracking the ordinary breathing process. But with each exhalation, just in one way or another, remembering that you value ease, that you value calm. And it might be you repeat a phrase in your mind, something like ease with conditions, being calm with the way it is. Or it could be just a single word like allowing or just the word ease. But when, we, when you repeat that word silently in your heart and mind, and you can do this in daily life, just as you're walking about, ease with conditions. And it's not like a suppressing agitation. It's being interested in the experience of ease when conditions are like this. When it's like this, what does ease look like now? Instead of thinking, well, of course I'm agitated, of course I'm upset, of course I'm tight, of course I'm reactive, of course I'm excited. But, but without having an opinion about those initial 
emotions or attitudes, moods. Just get interested in ease, being at ease. Because we might actually, it might be so functional to do everything we do, even those exciting moments, intense moments, from this place of ease and tranquility. So I encourage all of us, we have a 15 minutes, be nice to hear from people, questions, or your own experiences of tranquility. What were the supporting causes? What was the effect of recognizing that tranquility? What do you notice gets in the way? What attitude or fixed view that you might have that seems to you to get in the way of tranquility? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.